Section 8 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jayapal Caleb. Chapter 2, Habsburg and Valois 1 by Stanley Leeds, Part 3. Meanwhile, the imperial army had been long inactive at San Giovanni N.W. of Bologna. Destitute of everything, it was not likely that they would accept a truce which brought them only 60,000 ducats. A meeting had, in fact, already taken place, and Franzburg, while endeavouring to pacify his Landsknechte, was struck by apoplexy. His days of activity were over. Hereupon came the news of the truce with its impossible proposals prolonging the intolerable condition of inaction and want. The army clamoured to go forward and Bourbon decided to lead them. The Count del Guasto, Pescara's nephew, whose Italian patriotism always competed with his duty to his master, protested and withdrew, but on March 30 the others set forth, scantily provided with transport and provisions by the Duke of Ferrara. Clement, on the conclusion of the truce, had disbanded his troops and while Lannoy was endeavouring on his behalf to raise the money at Florence to appease the imperialists, the tumultuous advance continued. On April 21st, Lannoy met Bourbon with 100,000 ducats, but he now demanded more than twice that sum and the march proceeded down the valley of the Arno, threatening Florence. But the army of the League was near enough to protect that city and the only result was a futile rising of the citizens and the ascension of Florence to the League. Bourbon then determined to move on Rome, a resolution acceptable above all to his Lutheran followers. The Pope proclaimed his adhesion to the Confederates and clamoured for aid, but it was too late. On May 5th, the mutinous army appeared before Rome on the Monte Mario. They had left their artillery on the road, but the city was almost undefended except for some measures as Renzo de Sire had been able to take on orders given at the last moment. The next day, the Leonine city was assaulted and captured, the Duke of Bourbon being killed at the moment of escalading the wall. Philibert, Prince of Orange, took the command. Clement had only just time to seek refuge in St. Angelo. In the main city, Renzo de Seri endeavoured to persuade the Romans to protect themselves by breaking down the bridges and preventing the entry of the Colonna from the south. But he failed. The Trastevere was easily captured and the imperialists advanced without opposition across the bridge of Sixtus. For eight days the sack continued among horrors almost unexampled in the history of war. The Lutherans rejoiced to burn and to defile what all the world had adored. Churches were desecrated, women, even the religious, violated, ambassadors pillaged, cardinals put to ransom, ecclesiastical dignitaries and ceremonies made a mockery, and the soldiers fought among themselves for the spoil. The population of Rome had been much reduced by the plague of 1522, and a rough census taken shortly before the capture gives the number as about 55,000, of whom 4,000 are estimated to have perished in the sack. All who were able took to flight, and the deserted city was left to the soldiers. The Duke of Urbino came and looked at the city from without, but decided to do nothing, though the disorder of the imperial troops gave good hopes for an attack, and the Pope at least might have been rescued. In default of all aid, Clement made terms, the payment of 400,000 ducats and the surrender of Ostia, Civita, Beccia, Pianzena and Modena being stipulated. 
The Pope was closely guarded in the castle of Sant'Angelo. While he was helpless there, the imperialists occupied Ostia and Civita Vecchia, but were not able to obtain possession of the other places. The Duke of Ferrara seized Modena and Reggio. The Venetians, in spite of their alliance, Ravenna and Sevilla. The papal state was crumbling. From Florence, also the Medici nephews were expelled with their guardian, the Cardinal of Cortona. A republic was established, though the city still adhered to the League. Meanwhile in Rome, the Prince of Orange had been forced to relinquish his command, and Lannoy, who took his place soon afterwards, died of the plague, which was raging in the army. For nine months, the city and its neighbourhood were at the mercy of the lawless and leaderless troops. The responsibility of Charles for the sack of Rome cannot be accurately weighed. That he who wills the act wills also the consequences of the act is a principle that applies to both sides. Charles willed the advance of Bourbon and the armed coercion of the Pope. He willed that the Pope should be deceived by truces, which he did not intend to honour. He could not foresee that Bourbon's army would have been completely out of control, but sooner or later such must have been the case with these Italian armies, among whom destitution was chronic. On the other hand, Clement brought his fate upon himself. He who observes faith with none cannot expect that faith will be observed with him. He who takes the sword must accept what the sword brings. And although an honourable motive, the desire to liberate Italy and a natural motive, the desire to preserve the real independence of Florence and the papal power, may have partly influenced his actions, it is impossible to acquit Clement of a desire for personal and pontifical aggrandizement, while in the use of means for the accomplishment of these ends he showed neither rectitude nor practical wisdom. Even in his own game of Italian duplicity, he allowed himself to be outwitted. The Pope and the papacy were crushed into the dust, but the struggle was not yet over. Before the sack of Rome, Henry VIII and Francis had concluded a new and offensive alliance at Westminster, April 30, 1527, and after the news had spread through Europe, this was confirmed on May 29th and strengthened still further by the interview of Amiens, August 4th. One more great effort was to be made in Italy to force the Emperor to accept two million crowns in lieu of Burgundy and to release the sons of the French king. The king of England was to give support with money and with men. His zeal was quickened by a desire to liberate the Pope from imperial control and to bring influence to bear on him for the divorce of Catherine. In July, Lautrec set forth once more from Lyon for the Milanese with an army of 20,000 foot and 900 men-at-arms, to which Italian additions were expected. Advancing by the usual route of Susa, he easily made himself master of the western districts, including Alessandria and took Pavia by assault. Andrea Doria, the great Gioni sea captain, who was in himself almost a European power, came again into the king's service, leaving the Pope and by his aid the imperialist Adorni were driven from Genoa and the Fregoso party set up in their place. Teodoro Trivolzio was appointed to govern the city for France. Francesco Sforza was re-established in the chief part of the Milanese. Milan alone under Leva resisted. But without completing the conquest of the duchy, Lothric determined to go south to deliver the Pope. Prospects were favourable, for Ferrara had changed sides again, and Federico de Gungaza, Duke of Mantua, abandoning his policy of neutrality, joined the League. But while Lothric was still approaching, the Pope was forced on November 26th to accept the Emperor's terms which, except for the promise to convoke a general council to deal with the Lutheran heresy, chiefly concerned the payment of money and the grant of ecclesiastical privileges of pecuniary value. 
but provided against future hostility by the guarantee of Ostia, Civita Vecchia and Sitta Castellena and the surrender of notable cardinals as hostages. Indeed, the Pope, though unlikely to turn again to Francis, who had deserted him in his need, expelled his family from Florence and was now allied with the Duke of Ferrara. Before the day appointed for his release, the Pope was allowed to escape to Orvieto, December 6th, his original hostages having been also liberated by the intervention of the Cardinal Pompeo Colonna. He at once set his influence to work to establish a permanent peace. Both monarchs were prepared for peace, but the terms were difficult to arrange. In view of the great expenditure required, whether for the ransom of Burgundy or for the alternative of war, Francis called together an assembly of notables, December 16, 1527, to justify the levy of an extraordinary imposition. The church offered 1,300,000 livres, nobles promised unlimited aid, an offer which they afterwards unwillingly and grudgingly translated into prose, and those who spoke for the towns guaranteed 1,200,000 crowns. But the terms which were offered to Charles were rejected by him in January 1528 and war was solemnly declared on behalf of France and England. Charles in reply reproached Francis with having cowardly broken his knightly word and offered to sustain his contention with his body. Francis took up the challenge and asked that time and place should be named. But for one reason or another, this fantastic and frivolous proposal never came to its accomplishment and it may be doubted if either monarch desired to be taken at his word. Lothric was at Bologna when he heard of the liberation of the Pope, and he continued his march throughout the Romagna, favoured by the secret friendship of Clement. Thence he penetrated through the Abruzzi and advanced upon Apulia. This move drew the imperial army out of Rome, February 17, 1528, which they had sacked once more and left deserted. Of the forces which had sacked Rome, some 11,000 were left. The Prince of Orange had resumed the command and taken up his position at Troja to protect Naples. Lothric refused to attack him in this strong position, professing to be waiting for reinforcements, but when the Florentine troops arrived, the Prince of Orange retired towards Naples. Meanwhile, the Venetians, as in previous wars, occupied the cities on the Adriatic seaboard. The Prince saw that the utmost he could accomplish was to save Naples but it was with difficulty that he could collect sufficient provisions for the immediate needs of the troops and city, while Filipino Doria, cruising off the coast, intercepted supplies from Sicily. An attempt made by Moncada to surprise and crush the Gionese commander ended in disaster, with the loss of four galleys, the death of Moncada and of other captains, April 28, 1528, and almost immediately afterwards, Lothrec appeared before the walls. Naples was now completely blockaded by the Genoese fleet, soon reinforced by the Venetians, while Lothric established a siege on land. Meanwhile, Henry the Younger, Duke of Brunswick, crossed the Alps with a German force and on June 9th joined Leva on the Adda, unopposed by the Duke of Urbino. But instead of marching to Naples, Leva at once proceeded to the reconquest of the duchy, a part of which, including Pavia, he had previously recovered, and Lodi was besieged. But the country was bare of all sustenance, and even when bills arrived, there was no one to cash them. So after three weeks, the Germans refused to continue the thankless task, and the chief part of them went home. The imperial government in Milan about this time was reduced to such straits that they were driven to impose a ruinous tax on bread to meet their most necessary expenses. French reinforcements were collecting at Asti under the count of St. Paul. Never had the prospects of Spain in the peninsula looked so black. 
Suddenly, July 4th, orders came to Filipino Doria from his uncle Andrea to withdraw his blockading force from Naples. Francis had made the great mistake of offending the powerful sea captain. In addition to private slights, Andrea Doria was incensed at the apparent intention of Francis to develop Savona for war and commerce at the expense of Genoa, and when he expostulated with the king, Francis formed the dangerous design of arresting the captain in his own city and put a French commander without experience, Barbicio, over his head. Charles saw his opportunity and by the advice of the Prince of Orange, he won Doria for his own service on favourable terms of engagement and with the promise of liberty for Genoa under imperial protection. In vain, when Francis learned his danger, he conceded too late everything that Doria had asked. The admiral's suspicion and resentment had been aroused and he joined the emperor once and for all. This defection changed the whole position of affairs. While the French camp before Naples was ravaged by the plague, abundance succeeded to famine in the city. The French fleet under Barbizio arrived on July 17, bringing a few men, but little real assistance. Lothric clung desperately to his siege and endeavoured to collect fresh troops. The besieged became more and more audacious in their attacks. Doria appeared at Naples with his galleys, and when on August 16th Lothric died, the situation was hopeless. On August 28th, the remnants under the Marquis of Saluso retired to Aversa, where they were obliged to capitulate shortly after. On September 12th, Doria entered Genoa and established a new oligarchical republic, the French taking refuge in the Castelletto. The form of government then set up persisted, with some modification in 1576 until 1796, and Genoa had internal peace at last. In the north, Pavia had been retaken by St. Paul. The French commander made an effort to recover Genoa, but without success. The Genoese soon after occupied Savona, and the Castelletto surrendered October 28. Finally, in the spring of 1529, the combined armies of St. Paul and the Duke of Urbino determined to reduce Milan, not by a siege, but by a combination of posts of observation. This plan, unpromising enough in itself, was frustrated by the conduct of St. Paul, who attempted to surprise Genoa but allowed himself to be waylaid and defeated on his march by Leva at Landriano, June 20th. Francis and his allies still held some places in the Milanese and some outlying posts in the kingdom, as well as the cities of the Adriatic littoral. But negotiations begun in the winter between Louis of Savoy and Margaret, the ruler of the Netherlands, had resulted in a project of peace which was vehemently desired in the interests of all countries, but especially of the Netherlands, where public opinion made itself perhaps most felt. Charles was mediating a great expedition to Italy under his personal command, but he consented to treat. He sent full powers and instructions, elastic though precise, to Margaret, who was visited by the king's mother, Louis, at Cambrai, July 5th. Here the terms of peace were definitely concluded, and the treaty was signed on August 3, 1529. The compact of marriage between Francis and Eleonora was renewed. Francis resigned all pretensions to Italy, left his allies in the lurch, renounced his suzerainty over Flanders and Atoy, and all the frontier places on the northeast remained in the hands of the occupant. Robert de la Marc and the Duke of Gelders were abandoned. Two millions of crowns were to be paid as ransom for the young French princes, and in lieu of the present cession of Burgundy, to which Charles reserved his right, while the possessions of Bourbon and the Prince of Orange were left to the French king. With this treaty, the first stage in the settlement of the affairs of Western Europe was reached. 
to Spain was surrendered the unquestioned supremacy in Italy, while the territory of France remained practically undiminished. The agreement seemed stable. Both powers were thoroughly tired of war. The minor Italian potentates had begun to learn that nothing could be gained by war except a change of masters, accompanied by devastation, exaction, plague and famine. The Pope had made his choice at last. The influence of Ghiberti which had always been on the French side was removed. The moderation which Charles showed in the use of his success confirmed them in this frame of mind. It was his policy, while changing as little as possible in the government of the smaller states, to make such order as should secure to him in each effective supervision and control. The expedition which Charles had prepared for war in Italy set forth from Barcelona after a treaty had been concluded with the Pope, June 29th, and in the hope of peace from the negotiations at Cambrai. Charles may have received the news of peace on his arrival at Genova, August 12th. With the troops that he brought with him, with the victorious force from Naples, the army of Leva, and fresh German levies from the Tyrol, he was absolute master of Italy and could shape it at his will. His dispositions were made at Bologna, whither Clement came to confer on him the imperial crown. Peace was made with Venice, who restored all her conquests and paid a war indemnity. Francesco Sforza was restored to Milan, but Charles reserved the right to garrison the citadel of Milan and the town of Como, and a Spanish force was left in the duchy. Florence was restored to the Medici, an operation which required a 10-month siege, October 1529 to August 1530. Alessandro de Medici was appointed as head of the government of the city by the decree of October 28, 1530. The claim of the Duke of Ferrara to Reggio and Modena was reserved for the future decision of Charles. In all other respects, the Pope was restored to his full rights and re-entered on the possession of his temporal power, though his status now resembled that of an inferior and protected prince. Malta and Tripoli were given to the Knights of St. John. A League of the Powers of Italy was formed, to which finally not only the Pope, Venice, Florence, the Marquis of Mantua, now created Duke, but also the Duke of Savoy and all the minor states adhered. The Duke of Ferrara was to join when he had been reconciled to the Pope. After all was concluded, Charles received at the hands of the Pope the Iron Crown of Lombardy and the Imperial Crown, February 23-24, to and left Italy for Germany, April 1530. All the years of war he had spent in Spain, and this was the first time he had visited the ill-fated peninsula, where so much of all that is precious had been expended in supporting and combating his claims. How much had been sacrificed to these ends may best be indicated by noting that the Battle of Mohawks was fought in 1526, that Ferdinand was elected to the thrones of Bohemia and Hungary in the same year, and that the Diet of Speer and the Siege of Vienna are dated in 1529. The success of Charles appeared complete and permanent. Far other and even more difficult tasks awaited him beyond the Alps, but so far as Italy was concerned, he might sleep secure. He seemed to have brought for once in her troubled history unity to Italy. That so much had been achieved appears at first sight due more to good fortune than good management. Again and again, above all at Pavia and at Naples, luck had declared in his favour when everything seemed to promise disaster. But good fortune seldom comes where it is wholly unmerited. Though always unequal in intellect and resources to the gigantic tasks that were imposed upon him, Charles had shown perseverance almost adequate to his needs. Moreover, the brilliant work of his servants, of Pescara, of Leva, of Lenoy, of the Prince of Orange, even of the Duke of Bourbon, seems to argue something in this king which enabled him to choose the right men 
and retain their permanent and devoted service. The fidelity of his Spanish and to a less degree of his German soldiers compares very favorably with the conduct of other ill-paid mercenaries during this period. The emperor's name might count for much, but men may also well have felt that in serving Charles they were serving one who could always be trusted to do his best, who would never forget or neglect his duties, even though sheer physical incapacity might often leave him far below the level of his conscientious aspiration. But not less than the inexhaustible persistency of Charles, the defects of his rivals had contributed to the result. Francis's choice of men was persistently unlucky. Lothric and Bonnivet compare ill with the leaders of the imperial army. French support was never forthcoming at the crisis. When it came, it was ineffectively employed. On the Italian side, the leaders and the policy were similarly deficient. After all excuses have been made for the Duke of Urbino, he must be judged an unenterprising commander. Giovanni de' Medici, though brilliant as a subordinate, never had a chance to show if he had the capacity to conduct a campaign. The Venetians never dared to push home the resolution on which they had for the moment decided. Clement showed all the characteristics of a man of thought involved in uncongenial necessity of prompt, continuous and definite action. The shadowy figure of Francesco Sforza flits upon the stage and leaves no clear impression. Some features of the war deserve particular notice. It followed the path of least resistance and was therefore concentrated on Italy. The invasion of France, of the Netherlands, of Spain, though occasionally attempted, was always fruitless. Germany was never touched, though an attack might have been directed upon Württemberg and the Habsburg possessions in Alsace. In each of these countries, national resistance would be real and vigorous. The population was warlike. Spain was further protected by its inhospitable country, northeast France and the Netherlands by the numerous defensible towns. Italy had no effective feeling of nationality. Its inhabitants could fight for others but not for themselves. The immunity of the county and duchy of Burgundy from attack is surprising, but their security was mainly due to the guarantee which the Swiss exacted for their Burgundian friends and neighbours in their French Treaty of 1522. Except on this occasion, the national actions of the Swiss, which for a brief period had decided the fortunes of Italy, 1512-15, does not reappear. They fought as mercenaries, rarely for any national interest, and even as mercenaries their unquestioned military supremacy was passed away. The best Spanish foot was probably better, good Germans equally good. Moreover, religious differences were beginning to paralyze the confederation, and the reformers discouraged foreign service. Savoy and Piedmont were the highway of the French armies, exposed on the other hand to the incursions and requisitions of the imperialists when they had for the moment the upper hand in Milan. German assistance in men was more than might have been expected, considering the difficulties with which Ferdinand had to contend in the hereditary Habsburg lands. When the war was against the Pope, Lutheran ardor facilitated recruiting. The English alliance, though eagerly sought for, proved of little advantage on any occasion. But the outcome of events in Italy decided the question of Henry's divorce, and with it the defection of England from the papal obedience. The possession of Milan, on which the struggle chiefly turned, was a luxury to France, a point of vital importance to Charles, so long as he held the kingdoms of Naples and Sicily together with the Netherlands. The continued presence of two first-class powers in the peninsula was an impossibility. On the other hand, without the defence afforded by the territory and fortresses of Lombardy, Italy was constantly open to invasion, and the value of this Barbican was shown in the fact that only once in all these campaigns the kingdom of Naples was seriously threatened by the invasion of Lothric.
The other consideration that Milan was the door by which the Spanish forces through Genoa and the Italian forces from the south could come to the rescue of the Netherlands in event of civil war or foreign attack was not overlooked by Charles and his advisers, but its full significance was not in fact disclosed until the reign of Philip II. On the question of right, Charles professed to be fighting for a vassal of the empire wrongfully deforced than for an imperial fief forfeited by Sforza's treason, and the restitution of Milan to Sforza shows that the plea of right was not wholly insincere. We can see that the whole issue of the struggle centered in the question of finance, but unfortunately we are unable to follow the details or draw up any budget of expenses or receipts either for France or the Spanish possessions. During the years from the election to the empire until the conference of Bologna, the Netherlands were the chief resource of Charles. Year after year, the estates voted unheard of subsidies. The total contributions of the low countries are estimated for 1520 to 30 at no less than 15 million livres tournoi. And though a considerable part of this was consumed in the defense of the provinces for the necessities of their government and the maintenance of the court of the regent, it was to the Netherlands that Charles looked in the moments of his greatest despair. Castile came next, so soon as the revolt of the Communeros had been crushed. The annual income of Spain may be estimated at about 1,500,000 ducats in the first years of Charles' reign. The empire and the hereditary Habsburg lands may for this purpose be neglected. Money was raised in Castile by pledging the taxes in advance, by issuing juros or bonds at fixed interest charged upon the national revenues, by mortgaging to financial houses every possible source of profit. In this way, the great house of Fugger took over in 1524 the estates, Mastres belonging to the masterships of the three military orders, and later the quicksilver mines of Almaden and the silver mines of Guadalcanal. The Cruzada, or revenue from indulgences granted on pretext of a fictitious crusade, became a regular source of revenue, and when, as in the time of Clement, the papal sanction was refused, the king did not scruple to raise it on his own authority and to pledge it for many years in advance. The fifth on all treasures imported from the Indies was since the conquest of Mexico becoming a valuable supplement, and as an exceptional measure, the treasure could be seized and juros issued in recompense. But the objection of the Spaniards to the export of treasure from the peninsula made the use of these resources at a distance a very difficult operation, which could only be negotiated by the aid of the most powerful financial houses. From his early years, Charles relied greatly on the Fuggers. Genoa from the first, except when it was in French hands and in the later years of his reign Antwerp, were mainstays of his financial power. Charles was very punctilious in defraying at least the interest, if not the capital of his debts, and thus he was at all times able to borrow upon terms. His juros were sometimes issued at a price equivalent to a rate of 7.5%. But in times of great need and danger, when time was the dominant factor, he was obliged to pay as much as 12 and even 16% for loans. As time went on, the revenues of the Netherlands were similarly pledged in advance. The revenues of the Duchy of Milan in time of peace might have been considerable. In time of war, they were whatever the army could raise from the impoverished inhabitants. And before the war was over, the state of the country was such that not only was there no superfluous wealth, but the army and the inhabitants alike seemed in a fair way to perish of starvation. The case of Naples and of Sicily was not quite so desperate, in spite of two rather serious risings in Sicily which we have not had occasion to mention. 
but here a considerable army of occupation had to be kept up and a fleet if possible for the protection of the coast if not from the French and the Genoese at any rate from the pirates of Algiers. The surplus revenues of the southern kingdoms cannot have been large and although very often in an emergency Lannoy produced money to content some starving troops or to move some paralyzed army, the sums which are mentioned are almost always small and give but a poor idea of the capacity of the kingdoms to assist their king. Here also the same ruinous policy was pursued as in Castile, of pledging everything in advance, of selling everything that could be sold, and years of peace would be required before the kingdoms could recover. In Italy, another valuable source of occasional revenue was the subsidies raised from the lesser Italian states, which, unless actually at war with the emperor, could generally be coerced into payment, and if in his alliance were expected to contribute handsomely. The Pope was the largest giver, but Venice could sometimes be bled, and Florence, Lucca, Siena, Ferrara, Mantua were often in a condition which made refusal difficult. The King of France had a better financial system and was not troubled like the Spanish king by the necessity of consulting his estates. His entire revenue was somewhat less than the joint revenues of Spain and the Netherlands, but on the other hand he could increase it more rapidly by raising the tail, and it was entirely at his disposal. Nor was he troubled like Charles by the necessity of difficult financial operations before he could fit out an army. On the other hand, when his army was abroad, these obstacles confronted him also. His financial ministers were not conspicuous for honesty, and the institution of the Trisol de l'Epargne in 1523 to receive all casual and unexpected sums of revenue and to build up a reserve fund to be at the king's absolute disposal was not so great a success as was hoped. The deficits during the years of war reached an alarming figure, and it is difficult to see how they were met, for the credit system in France was not developed as it was in Augsburg, Genoa, and Antwerp. The first public loans in France were raised on the security of the revenues of particular towns, and it was not until 1542 that the king began to build up Lyon as a financial centre to perform for him the same functions that the bourses of Genoa and Antwerp were fulfilling for Charles. The attempt had some success and similar bourses were started at Toulouse 1556 and at Rouen 1563. Henry II on his ascension acknowledged the debts of his father and the royal credit sensibly improved. At the outset the king was obliged to pay 16% for advances but by 1550 the rate had fallen to 12%. But confidence was rudely shaken when in 1557 the king suspended the payment of interest on the debt which at that time amounted perhaps to 5 million crowns. We can thus get a glimpse of the methods by which the enormous expenses of these and subsequent wars were liquidated. All the spare cash of Europe, withdrawn from commerce and industry, flowed at a crisis into the king's coffers. The road was opened to national bankruptcy, which was general soon after the Treaty of Cateau-Cambresis. Princes had learned to borrow, but they had not learned to pay. The sources of wealth were diverted from profitable and useful enterprise to destructive war, and in the long run, not even the financiers profited, though in the interval some capitalists built up fortunes which are almost comparable with those of our own day. End of section 8